Uh, good morning. I'm going to continue with Matthew 9. We got up to Matthew 9, verse 15 last time. We're going to continue Matthew 9, 16. So we'll start, as usual, with a, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we are here again in search of you and of your, your dear Son. And we pray that through the medium of the Gospel of Matthew, through the inspired words we're going to read, we might again meet with Jesus and that we might abide with him and that we might truly follow him to the end. Heavenly Father, please be with us and, and guide us in our desire to connect with you and connect with him and to have the Spirit of Christ, without which we know we are none of his. So, Father, please bless us for his sake. Amen. So, Matthew 9, we got up to the point where in verse uh, 14, the disciples of John come to him and say, why do we and the Pharisees often fast and your disciples don't? And we perceive there a, a tension, I think, uh, the desire of the disciples of John to kind of stick with the Pharisees rather than with the Lord Jesus. And this tension was, was not only there in the, in the first century, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in the actual ministry of the Lord Jesus, it continued throughout the first century, that those who believed in Jesus were torn really between totally following him and yet remaining within Judaism. And you see that tension throughout the, the early church. Now, the little parables that the Lord now tells, starting from uh, 16, are addressing that very problem. And it translates to us in our situation in that we likewise are tempted, I think, to take part of the message of the Lord Jesus and stick with that, rather than actually wholly devoting ourselves completely to him. So he says, no man puts a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up takes from the garment, and the rent, the schism, is made worse. Now, I wonder if the uh, emphasis and meaning is on, on the piece. You don't just take a piece of new cloth to fix up the, uh, the old garment. You've got to wear the new garment. Don't just take a piece of the teaching of Jesus and go with that. And that's directly in the context of this problem with the disciples of John, that he was teaching about Jesus. That was the fundamental uh, purpose of his ministry. And they had accepted that to some degree. But they had only actually taken a piece of, of the message of the New Covenant. Now, the old garment, this very phrase is used in Hebrews 1.11 to talk about the whole mosaic system. Jesus is saying that you've got to put on new clothes. And Romans 6 and elsewhere in the New Testament, we, we meet that metaphor again of putting on Christ, of him and the life in him being a new covenant, a new uh, set of clothes that we put, in, put on. He says if you just put a piece of new cloth into the old, that which is put in to fill it up, is going to take from it, it's going to separate, it's going to make a division and wreck the garment even more. Now, when we read about that which is put in to fill it, this is this Greek word pleroma, which uh, is elsewhere used about fulfilling. And it's used about the fulfillment of the law in Christ, and Ephesians 4.13 uses the word, the fullness of Christ. 
So he's saying, look, that fullness which is possible in me, that fulfilling of the law of Moses is not going to come about by taking just bits and pieces, a piece of the new cloth, a piece of my teaching, and trying to, to, to fix up the obvious problem that there was with the Mosaic law, that it was not bringing salvation, uh, and uh, as Hebrews makes it clear every year in any case, there was a remembrance made of sins unforgiven through the, the Day of Atonement. So he's saying that if you do this, then it will take from the old garment. It will separate or divide. That's the, the meaning of the Greek word there. And the rent, the uh, schisma, schism, is going to be made made worse. And that word, uh, schisma, the rent, is used elsewhere about divisions between people, especially the Jews, concerning Jesus. You get it in John seven forty three, John nine sixteen about how there was a division over Jesus. And that Jesus is saying that's inevitable. And if you're just trying to patch things up, then this division will get worse. If we put on the new garment, if there is a total devotion to him, then there is no schism between us. And of course it's significant that when the Lord dies, they gamble over his garment because it was seamless. His garment was without seam. It was woven from the top, if you remember, John makes that point. Well, <clears throat> he says that the rent is made worse. We're still in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, and the Greek word translated worse definitely has a moral dimension. It, it's made evil. It's made more evil, more sinful. So I think he's saying that, look, this attention which there is between you and me, because you want part of my teaching, and yet you're buddy with the Pharisees, and you're in with the Jewish system, look, this initial tension is going to end up sinful, very sinful. You've got to completely give yourself to, to me, and a take on my teaching in wholeness, or else the whole situation is going to become far worse. And have we all not seen that, I suspect, in our, his, in our history, in our experience with um, Christian churches and with division? That I would say that reading from this, reading in, I suppose, a bit here, but that division ultimately comes from a lack of having wholeheartedly taken on board the message of Jesus. And just taking bits and pieces that happen to fit in with our culture, with our expectations, etc. This is a big problem of picking and choosing, of taking what parts, let's say, of the Sermon on the Mount we, we find uh, convenient and attractive and forgetting the rest. And this is a major problem that, that you see. It always uh, amuses me how those who are so into keeping parts of the law of Moses, particularly in the Adventist community, quite literally <coughs> seem to pick and choose. We'll keep the Sabbath, or parts of the Sabbath regulations, uh, but we won't, uh, we won't do this, that, and the other, but we'll choose that bit, and we'll choose that bit, uh, etc. But this is not the way to go. And yet morally, and this is more the point for us, we all have the same temptation to take just that which is convenient. For example, you may be a member of a church that's very happy, and uh, that's your social club. And you look at the uh, teaching about going to church, uh, not the assembling of yourselves together. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, sure, go to the meeting, because that's your social club. You wouldn't know what to do on a Sunday morning unless you went to church. 
that's all very well and good, but there's a whole load of other teaching in in the Lord's uh, covenant, which may be not quite so convenient for us. And the point is, if that's how you go, if you just pick and choose, take a piece of the of the new and put it into your old way of life, you're going to destroy yourself. And he he makes the point more powerfully in verse 17. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. Now, the new wine is clearly a reference to the, the blood of Jesus, the, the new covenant. Or else it will break them, or shatter, or, or divide them. <clears throat> and again, the context is of John's disciples uniting with the Pharisees, it seems, against the disciples of Jesus. And Jesus is saying that <clears throat> what's going to happen is that there's going to be real destruction of life through schism and schism within the church within the community of believers <clears throat> is really like a cancer it's carcinogenic and it destroys people and that's why any kind of division that we allow or push forward or whatever is definitely so sinful because it shatters people and he, he says that if you do that then the, the new wine will run out and that, in verse 17, and you may like to scribble this in your margin, uh, that is the same word that is translated shed, when it is used about the shedding of the blood of Christ. <clears throat> Classic 1, Matthew 26, verse 28, <clears throat> Christ's blood of the new covenant was shed. The connection is pretty clear. It ran out. The, the wine runs out, same word, shed. So then, failed spiritual life, the life which only partially accepts the new wine of Christ, but refuses to change, refuses to be new containers for it, uh, really leads to the re-crucifixion of Jesus. You remember Hebrews 6, verse 6, that it's quite possible to crucify the Son of God afresh, etc. The bottles perish... That means that uh, it's twice emphasized. The bottles are, are broken or shattered and they also perish. And that's used, that Greek word translated perish, is used several times about the final destruction of people at the last day. So it's not just a case of accepting a set of theology, of accepting the new wine. Okay, now I, I can tick all these boxes, I understand this, that and the other. Unless you change you know what? That will destroy you. All that theology, if you like, all that academic truth that you learnt and ticked all the boxes to and got baptised, that will destroy you. Unless you change. And he goes on and says, <clears throat> if you do, if the new wine is put into new bottles, new containers, new wineskins, both are preserved. Both are preserved. The loss is not only to the untransformed person, there's a loss and damage to the new wine. So Jesus personally is damaged by every untransformed life. Both are preserved or both are lost. It's not just a story about us as the, the wine skins, the flesh in which the wine is poured, as it were, getting shattered and destroyed unless we change. The wine is also lost. It is shed again. It's a very powerful uh, uh, metaphor, it's a very powerful teaching that we must change radically and deeply personally. And that the whole intention of 
our calling is not to to tick theological boxes to get, uh, let's say, get it right about the devil, get it right about the nature of God, get it right about the nature of man, get it right about the nature of God's kingdom, and that's it, and just hold on to those understandings to the end and, and you'll be right. No, all that will destroy you, true as it is, unless you personally change. It's not simply having the new wine, it's in what you're going to preserve it. And as I say, think of the real damage, the shedding of the blood of Jesus yet again, that happens unless we are going to change. Now Luke's record adds uh, a kind of a conclusion to this. It's in Luke 5.39. No man also having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, within himself, the old is better. And I think that appears to be a concession to the weakness of John's disciples. And the Lord is saying, I understand, because I understand human nature, I understand the conservatism which there is within us as human beings. That because you're used to the old wine, uh, you're going to think that the old is better. I understand this. And no matter how progressive thinking you reckon you are, no matter how open-minded and liberal you think you are, you know what? You and I, we are terribly conservative when it comes to spiritual things. We stick with the old coping pattern that we've had, with old coping mechanisms, with, with, with tradition, with the way we are used to doing things. And people will go to any length sometimes, it seems to me, to stick with the old, to stick with what they have known. Now, there is unfortunately the assumption in many Christian groups, and certainly in the, uh, the group that I grew up with, that conservative equals righteous. That if it's the way we used to do it, that must be right, that must be righteous, that must be the way of God. But actually not so. The Lord is saying here that not at all, that we have got to change and that he, he recognizes this conservatism within us, but he's really saying it's better to uh, recognize that and to take the plunge and to get involved in this radically new way of being. And it, it is our native uh, conservatism which is actually what puts the brakes on all the time, our real and radical change. Now, the Lord understands that. That is the great comfort that he's engaging here with the, the disciples of John, and he's saying that, yes, I, I understand that you are sort of pulled back to the Pharisees and, and all that. Look, I understand, it's going to take time. And, of course, in the bigger picture, God did recognize that because the Lord's blood was shed in AD 33, and the temple was not destroyed until AD 70. So there was clearly a changeover period. It's not as if uh, God and, and Jesus expected that Jewish people immediately would ditch the entire Mosaic system in AD 33. There was this, this changeover period that was kind of uh, built in. Now verse 18, while he was saying all this, there was coming a certain ruler saying, please, my daughter's dead. Uh, please come and lay your hand upon her and she shall live. So all the way through this conversation, while the Lord is saying this, there's this man 
uh, this uh, ruler, this wealthy man, man used to power, sort of uh, butting in like he's used to people paying attention to him, and the Lord is not paying attention to him, apparently. And he is saying, look, she's dead, you know, she, she's, you must come right now. And instead the Lord goes on about all, all this stuff about, I understand your conservatism, and uh, there's a real need to change and to, uh, to new wineskins for new wine. And this guy must have been thinking, oh, come on, Jesus, right out, we've got your point, you know, what do you keep labouring this for? Of course, the Lord was not unmindful of the man's situation. And yet the point is that he was uh, demonstrating, I think, the colossal importance of what he's just been saying. He's saying, yes, I understand that you think it's a matter of life and death that I come and, and raise your, your dead daughter, uh, but you know what? What I'm saying here is actually life and death. Now, he's called here a certain ruler. In Mark, he's called Jairus. The name is given. In Matthew, it's not given. And I'd like to put before you a couple of verses from John. John seven forty eight, where the Orthodox Jews say none of the rulers have believed on him, on Jesus. And then John 12, verse 42, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess Jesus for fear of being put out of the synagogue. So here we have a certain ruler. One of those, it seems, from John 12, 42, who believed in Jesus but feared being put out of the synagogue and uh, the, keeping in with the Pharisees. You can see why this is all in the context of verse 14, that the disciples of John were getting buddy with the Pharisees. And... Yet, John 7, 40, 48, the, the Jews boasted, no, none of our rulers believe on Jesus. So, theoretically, they all said, no, we don't believe in him. And yet, some of them did. Now, Jesus has said that a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And that's quite a major theme in his teaching, that there is no such thing as a secret Christian. And that if you do hide your light under a bucket, well, it will go out. Now, it's not to say that preaching is the be-all and end-all of everything, but what it is to say is that if we are hiding our light and we're acting like we are not believers, then actually the light will go out, you'll lose it. And you know, I fear that the lack of mention of Jairus' name here in Matthew, although in the first, chronologically, that the first gospel it seems it was written was Mark, his name is given as Jairus, I fear that he lost it. Or fear. And of course that's uh, the pattern for all of us, that unless we are going to be open and unashamed of our commitment to the Lord, eventually you too will lose it. Now verse 19, and Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. I've said a number of times, and I will repeat it, that in Matthew's Gospel, and in all the Gospels I, I think, but I, I notice particularly here in Matthew, it's as if Matthew is a cameraman. It's as if he's shooting a movie. And the zoom is now quite close in. Jesus arises and follows the man. Then the disciples arise and follow. So we can play Bible television with, with the whole thing. Now, of course, why did Jesus delay? Why, why didn't he see the poor guy's need and say, okay, sure, I'll come straight away. I'll just finish off this bit of teaching later. 
Well, this is the, the old question of the silence of God. Why did the Lord make as if he was going to go further on the way to Emmaus? Why did he make as if he was going to pass by the disciples when they're about to drown on the lake? And so many other examples. Well, I think it's because he wants to peak the intensity of our faith and our recognition of our desperation for him. And I think this is another example. Then again, verse uh, 20, and behold, a woman, behold, I think that, you know, this is in, in language, but if he were a cameraman, this is the zoom in on a new person. So behold, look, lo, these kind of words <clears throat> are quite common in the Gospels, although the more modern translations tend to, tend to skip over them. But the, the idea is being given of a focus in that really we are to see Jesus live here, as it were. So, behold a woman who was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years. <clears throat> She'd been sick for 12 years. And yet, the girl who he's going to heal, how old was she? 12 years old. Now that can't be, that can't be just a chance. The girl was 12 years old, and he's on the way to raise this dead 12-year-old, and a woman comes to him who's been sick for 12 years with a, a blood issue, with hemorrhaging. Now, it would seem to me then that we are to see these two cases in parallel, the daughter of the wealthy ruler and this woman on the very margin of society. She had a blood disease. Judaism was paranoid about blood. Uh, she was hemorrhaging, etc. And so she was right on the very edge of uh, society. And yet in both these cases, the, uh, the privileged young girl and the, uh, the woman on the edge of society, there's obviously a power that the father and son have been working in their lives by providence, angelic hand, however you want to look at it, for 12 years. And so God is working in our lives according to a pattern, and often he's working in parallel with somebody else also for you know, the same period of time, maybe in the same way. So she comes behind. And again, we can see Matthew as the cameraman catching this woman, creeping up behind. Uh, interesting that she comes behind him, just like the disciples followed him in verse 19. It's as if she is among the disciples, and she touches the hem in order to get healing. Well, the hem was what the Jews were supposed to, to make according to the law, uh, a, a blue hem, I guess to remind them of, of uh, God, blue representing heaven, etc. And yet she believed that Jesus was the healer and that healing was in his hem. Well, in Malachi 4, we're told that the Son of Righteousness, which is the Lord Jesus, shall arise with healing in his hems, in his wings, the AV says, but the idea is definitely in, his, in, in the hems of his garments. And she sees that there's healing in the hem. Well, she perceived that. She understood the Malachi prophecy. And yet it is also clear that, it's also clear that she still had the idea that if you physically touch something, then you get healed. 
This is why Roman Catholics will travel and Orthodox uh, believers will travel all kind of distances to get somewhere like the, the Black Madonna or whatever uh, to touch. There's this whole idea of Kasania in the Russian Orthodoxy to, to go to, to a holy place and touch something. And if I touch it, then I, I'll, get, I'll get healed. And she, this, this is all in all kinds of primitive uh, religions and paganism, etc. She had this. And yet the Lord doesn't turn around and say to her, look here, honey, you, you just got it wrong. He heals her. But he then says, your faith has made you whole. Because she says, if only I can touch him, verse 21, if I may, if I can only touch him, I shall be made whole. She touches him and the Lord says, your faith made you whole. You have to touch me. It's something to do with touch. Your faith. And he recognizes that she had faith, understood Malachi 4, etc., the son of righteousness with healing in his hems. That's what healed you. And so that is how the Lord operates with people. He recognizes that human motivation is terribly mixed. And we should understand that in our interaction and engagement with others, that human motivation is terribly, terribly mixed. And he says, okay, well, on one hand you believe, on one hand you understand it, on the other hand you've got a totally wrong idea about touching me, but okay, anyway, I'll heal you. Now, he didn't see it all in just terms of black and white. Oh, you don't get that, you haven't got that bit right, so you're out. This is the trouble with operating uh, strict fellowship on the basis of, of a great big long statement of faith with all kinds of different uh, doctrinal positions in it. Oh, you're, you're wrong on, on clause number whatever. Uh, okay, right, you're out. You, you're not in fellowship with us. You're not in fellowship with God, right? We're, we're out with you. Because, of course, if someone's in fellowship with God, then you've got a duty to fellowship with them. Um, uh, and so, unfortunately, that, that is how things go. But the Lord was not like that. He recognized that you can believe and unbelieve at the same time. Like the man said, I believe, he'll help my unbelief. Uh, you can have correct understanding and wrong understanding at one and the same time. But of course, he sought to correct her. But he still engaged with her, he still healed her. That's my point. So he turns him about, verse 22, again, this emphasis right up close on the physical movement, body language of the Lord. He turns him about and says, daughter, be of good comfort. Now, he's used that phrase earlier in the beginning of this chapter in, in verse 2, where he says to the paralyzed man, son, here he says daughter, son, be of good comfort. So he worked to a pattern, and in fact he uses the phrase four times in the Gospels. Be of good comfort, be comforted, uh, let me come close to your heart. That, that's the idea. And after his resurrection, he uses the very same phrase when he appeared to Paul in Acts 23 verse 11. He says, Paul, be of good comfort. Now, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has the same language use. Just like all of us, every human being, we have certain phrases that we use. It's just how, how life is, how life functions. We, we come out with certain uh, chains of language in certain situations. That's just how everybody is. Everyone's a bit different. We come out with certain phrases. And the Lord Jesus is the same today, because he uses the phrase in his heavenly glory to Paul, be of good comfort, Paul, 
just as he did during his ministry. And uh, I'm always fascinated looking through Revelation and looking at the uh, times when we have words and actions of Jesus after his ascension and comparing them and linking them up with the words and actions of the Lord before his uh, ascension, while he was in his ministry. Because it all proves that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And why, why is that significant? Because we shall meet him. We shall meet him. And who shall we meet? We shall meet the same Jesus that we're studying here. The same Jesus of the Gospels. It's not that he showed one face when he was with the disciples and he's coming back with a totally different different face. This idea that, oh, well, he was the, uh, the gentle lamb when he came here, but he's coming back as the angry, roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. No, no, this, this is a total lack of attention uh, to the biblical text there in Revelation. The, the language of lion and lamb are used about Jesus during his earthly life and also at his return. For example, they, the, the rejected will, will say, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. Not the wrath of the lion, the wrath of the lamb. So you can understand that, yeah, Jesus is going to be angry, he's going to have wrath, but it's the wrath of a lamb, it's a lamb-like wrath, like lambs get angry get trodden on it, etc. But there's still the, you know, the, the iconic sort of that sweet, innocent lamb. And so <clears throat> what I'm saying is that that is not a, a correct picture. That the Lord who loved little children, the Lord who was so sensitive to faith and unbelief, existing true understanding and wrong understanding, coexisting within a person and still wanting to save them, this Jesus is the same today uh, and he will be. So then, verse 23, when Jesus was came into the ruler's house, so many times, over 30 times in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read of Jesus coming into people's lives, houses, situations. Just look here in, in Matthew 9, verse 1, Jesus came into his own city. Here, 23, he comes into the ruler's house. 28, he comes into a house etc. 12 verse 9, he came into a synagogue. 13, 36, he came into a house. Why this huge emphasis? I think the idea is that he who was with the Father in his thoughts came into human situations. Now, when you come to John's Gospel, you read about Jesus coming into the world. Same word. And uh, our Trinitarian friends uh, misunderstand that as meaning that Jesus was somehow up in heaven and he came into, onto our planet. That's clearly not so. You can't understand it literally in that sense. John is putting, as he does, in more spiritual abstract language, what you've got here in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, where Jesus quite simply comes out of his own sort of shell of spirituality and enters into, comes into various um, situations, uh, houses, families, etc. So then the Lord says to the, the minstrels, these are the professional flute players uh, at the, the funeral, uh, give place. And I think what he's saying is, yeah, I know you've been hired for the funeral, but you, you're released now, you're free. Because uh, the funeral's over, because I'm going to raise her. 
On the one hand, you see his great faith, that it was really, he really was going to, uh, to raise her, and he dismisses these uh, flute players as uh, unnecessary, because it's not, not a funeral anymore. And I want to just um, make a point here that, look, just, what, half an hour before, her father had been saying to Jesus, look, uh, come straight away, my daughter's just died. And yet he gets there, and there's a funeral going on. Well, uh, the father had not really told the truth, had he? He'd exaggerated. He twisted, uh, twisted time a little bit. Because the funeral doesn't happen like the minute the child dies. Uh, so the funeral is now in full place because the minstrels are there. So he hasn't actually told the truth. Now, you know, I get very annoyed by things like that. If somebody comes to me wanting help for something, oh, oh, please come, please give me some money, please come and help me in such and such situation. And you come there and you realize, yeah, you have got a problem, but you, you, you twisted it, didn't you? You exaggerated it to try to get me to, to help as quick as I could. Uh, and you didn't tell me the truth. And that personally irks me, and I'm sure it did the Lord as well, but, because it irks everybody, because it's part of human nature, but he still healed the child. He didn't turn around and say, look, sorry, mate, you, you gave me the impression that she'd only just died or she was about to die. That sort of is how it could be read. Um, uh, that she's about to die, please can I come quickly and I get here and the, the funeral's in full, full swing. Now, you didn't tell me the truth. You twisted it, didn't you? But he doesn't. He heals her. That's grace. That's how he is. He so wants to engage with people. He's not a legalist picking up somebody on every fault, on, on everything. Oh, you said this, but actually that's wrong. And that, that is a terrible, a, a, a terrible feature of so much uh, conservative Protestant Christianity, unfortunately. And it's totally not the spirit of Christ. I must pick you up on this. You said that, but actually it's this. You claim this, but actually it's that. We've got to go into this matter. Yeah, That's not actually how the Lord dealt with these issues. He was operating on a far higher level and he made his point in a far more profound way than picking everybody up on every little thing they said that was not quite the case. Well, it says here that they laughed him to scorn and both Mark and Luke record that. It's as if it really struck all the three synoptic writers that he was laughed to scorn. I think it's quite a, uh, uh, an insight into his humanity. It implies that he blushed, looked at the ground, did those sort of human responses. It's an absolute picture of his humanity. And then 25, he takes her by the hand, puts the mourners out of the house, takes her by the hand, and raises her up. That's exactly what Peter did with Tabitha. And the question is, did Peter consciously try to copy what Jesus did? Or was it, and I prefer this latter explanation, or was it that he had so absorbed the spirit of Jesus that actually without actually consciously trying to do it, he ended up acting as Jesus? He ended up with the same even kind of body language and style as the Lord Jesus. That, it seems to me, is what uh, having the spirit of Christ is all about. So the fame of him, verse 26, went all over the place. 
Now, the Greek word literally means the rumor. You can imagine how rumors would have spread that what he did was amazing. And you can imagine it in a gossipy, small-town society like that, that he, he would have been grossly misrepresented. And yet, you know what? You never once, you never once hear of Jesus sitting down and saying, guys, I've heard that it's been said about me, but I would just like to correct you that actually this, that, and the other is the case. So then, two blind men, verse 27, they latch on to him and they say, You son of David, have mercy on us. So, again you see how the Lord Jesus is dealing with thoughtful, marginalized people. I say these were thoughtful people because they perceived he was the son of David. And they perceived a link between being the son of David and having mercy I guess they were aware of Isaiah 55 verse 3, the sure mercies of David and of the promise to David that my mercy will not depart from David's son. And also, the son of David had the characteristics of David and David of all men is presented as the most merciful and gracious. His grace to the house of Saul, to Absalom, to all those who rose up against him. It's really quite amazing. And this, these men perceive that. So again, it is the thoughtful and marginalized who the Lord focuses on and heals. And that is exactly, it seems to me, the sort of people who get baptized these days. The thoughtful, marginalized people. And these are the very ones I suggest that we should, we should go for. Try to focus upon it in our preaching. So the Lord touched their eyes, verse 29, and uh, their eyes are probably secreting unclean uh, liquid. But the Lord touched them. Of course, he could heal by a word. We know that. Say the word, your servant shall be healed, uh, my servant shall be healed. Exactly. He could. But there's this huge emphasis about 30 times in the Gospels on Jesus touching people. 30 separate incidents when the Lord touches people. Now he's quite clearly plugging into the Jewish idea of guilt by association. That if you touch, you are somehow contaminated. Well he's just been touched by, uh, by a, a hemorrhaging woman. <clears throat> and so now he's technically making making these blind men unclean anyway, but then he's touching unclean liquid coming out of their eyes, I, I suggest. So he's redefining this whole idea of guilt by association. And come to think of it, the woman who touched him, who touched his hem, knowing that she was hemorrhaging, knowing that she had an issue of blood, she quite clearly uh, did not believe that guilt was spread in that sense by association, by contamination. So he he opens their eyes, and then he says in verse 30, see that no man knows it. (laughs) Well, that's pretty impossible. You heal two blind guys, and suddenly they can see, and everyone who known them as blind suddenly sees, wow, they can see. And he says, now, don't tell anyone. Well, it's pretty obvious that people are going to know. So why tell these guys, don't tell anyone? Isn't it going to be obvious? I think the point is that we are to be witnesses in who we are. That, as Psalm 19 says about the heavens declaring the glory of God, 
So we, in who we are, are the ultimate witness to him. And so it is with these blind men. Don't say anything. That's what the Lord is saying. Let people come and see. Wow, these blind guys can can see again. Or they can see. Uh, That was to be the silent witness. And that's what the Lord so loved. But, 31, they went out and and, uh, disobeyed. The Lord's chosen method for their preaching. And this is a theme of disobedience to the Lord's commands about preaching because the Great Commission to take the gospel to all the world was not obeyed by the disciples as they should have done. They, I guess, assumed that it would mean take the gospel to Jews all over the world. And yet the terms of the Great Commission are quite quite clear. And then the dumb man, possessed with a demon, you just notice wave after wave of situations coming to Jesus. This day that's being recorded here in Matthew 9 must have been exhausting for him. Now, the dumb man is possessed with a demon, and when the demon is cast out, the dumb man spoke. Well, there are cases now where dumbness can be cured by various various methods, not always, but by therapy and uh, operations, etc., it can be cured. Now, you can tell me that that therapy and those operations of that medical science uh, is chasing demons. But quite clearly, the language of demon possession is simply another way of talking about uh, illness which people at that time could not explain rationally. So then, verse 36. When Jesus saw when Jesus saw, so yeah, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they were as sheep having no shepherd. If I were Jesus, I'd have been irritated by them. I'd have thought, ah, oh, you people, your motivation is so poor. You people are here basically because you just want bread, or you want miracles, or you want a, a bit of benefit. There's so much poor motivation, but he saw all those multitudes and was moved with compassion towards them because they were sheep having no shepherd. Now, that is really a challenge to us, to not, to not uh, judge people's motives or to not let our, maybe our genuine knowledge, legitimate knowledge of people's motives affect our compassion towards them. Even if human motivation is wrong, That does not mean we don't feel compassion. Because we know from what the Lord says in John 6 about the multitudes that they were mismotivated. He he says that to them. You seek me. Just because of free bread, basically. Free food. And yet he still had compassion. And that's that's wonderful, really. He saw their basic need. It's like the Samaritan, the same word, Luke 10, 33. He had compassion <clears throat> on the wounded man. The father of the prodigal had compassion on him. And so he, because of this compassion, we're told in Mark six thirty four, that's the parallel record, because he had this compassion, he taught them many things. So the root motivation for all our teaching, for all our preaching, for all our witness is because we have compassion on people regardless of their motivation. Not for any other reason. Not to 
certainly not, not to get any prominence to ourselves, not, not to prove ourselves right, prove other people wrong, not to do a PR exercise for our denomination, our church, etc. All witness, be it writing an email, be it saying something to somebody, be it talking off a, off a podium, is because we have compassion on people. And then he says, the harvest is plenteous, verse 37, but the laborers are few. Understand from that then that <clears throat> if there had been more laborers, there would have been a greater harvest brought in. Now, when we read the laborers are few, it doesn't just mean few numerically. It can also mean weak. They're not very strong. There's not many of them, and they're not very good. Now, if there had been more of them, then a greater harvest would have been gathered. So I think you see from that that God has delegated his work of saving people to us. And if we don't do that work, it will not happen. So if you feel, as I often feel, and probably you have done as, as well, you come out of an engagement with a person, a meeting with somebody, maybe passing, and you think, ah, I didn't say anything. I didn't lead them at all to Jesus. And you can think, well, yeah, God, please forgive me for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And, uh, and please, you know, well, Lord, you'll do your thing once you get someone else to do it, uh, basically. But you know what? Maybe, not necessarily. Maybe you were the person. And you, you, you flunked it, you messed it. That's it. Maybe there is no plan B. In fact, from how the Lord reasons here, there was no plan B for a lot of people. Because he says, the harvest is plenteous. All these poorly motivated crowds, actually out of those people, there's a great harvest if there were more laborers. Now this idea of the laborers being few, that is being weakened, uh, etc., this is picked up, of course, in, in, in the, the later parable where the Lord says, this is in Matthew 20, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, where the Lord is clearly like the, the person who's going out trying to hire laborers into his vineyard, <clears throat> and even at the, the 11th hour, he goes out and he finds people who have not been rented, not been hired. And why have they not been hired? Because they were maybe invalids, they were weak, they were lazy, they were well known for being lazy. They had some problem which is why they weren't hired in the first hour of the day. And they're still there. No one wanted to hire them. And the Lord says, okay, you go. Look, I just want anyone. Just do something. Just go. All right, you handicapped. You, you can't gather any, any grapes, but you might pick up a couple of them. So go, mate. Just go. I'll give you the same, the same money as the fellow who worked all day. So then so much has been delegated into our hands. And if we do not, if we do not do that work, then it will not be done. So then the extent of the success of God's work depends upon us. This is not justification by works. This is salvation in that sense does not depend upon works. I'm simply uh, developing what to me seems the obvious statement here that if you don't do the work of saving others, those people will not be saved and there is no plan B. If there was a plan B... Well, this metaphor, this whole language is meaningless. And the urgency in the later parable to get the laborers out there, no matter how crippled and lazy and good-for-nothing they were, even if they're going to pick up just a couple of grapes, okay, 
Yeah, but that that loses meaning if actually there's a there's a plan B out there. And when he says thirty eight, so pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers, that is more laborers and stronger laborers into his harvest. Send forth. This is the idea of the Great Commission, is it not? And so I think that when the Lord gave the Great Commission, then he felt that the time had come. So we who obey it, and we are all called to obey the Great Commission, we who obey it are therefore these laborers that are being sent forth into the harvest, and we should pray that more will be sent so that more people can come. And and you see that the, the, the amount of harvest, that is the number of people saved, is related to the number of laborers. <clears throat> it's related to the number of laborers. It's quite clear that each of us are intended to bring others to Christ. So if you think, ah, oh, yeah, no one's interested. No, no, d- don't come to that conclusion too quickly. I don't think that's true. Well, I know it's, it's not true. People are desperately interested. Desperately interested. You need to pray that the Lord will lead you to those people because believe me, they are there. They are there in every society. Maybe you live in Muslim society. Maybe you live in, in a hedonistic, uh, materialistic, atheistic society. All the same. Maybe you live in Catholic country. I, 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 truly, I've lived in all those countries. And I can tell you that there are des- definitely, desperately people there. Pray that the Lord will send out more laborers and pray that he will connect you with that harvest. Thank you, Lord.